Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Ephesians 5, 1 through 21 through 6, 9. And submit to each other out of respect for Christ. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is the head of his wife, like Christ is the head of the church. That is, the Savior of the body. So wives submit to their husbands in everything, like Christ submits to the church. As for husbands, love your wives just like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. He did this to make her holy by washing her in a bath of water with the word. He did this to present himself with a splendid church, one without any sort of stain or wrinkle on her clothes, but rather one that is holy and blameless. That's how husbands ought to love their wives, in the same way as they do their own bodies. Anyone who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body but feeds it and takes care of it, just like Christ does for the church, because we are parts of his body. This is why a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two of them will be one body. Marriage is a significant allegory, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. In any case, as for you individually, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their husbands. As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached, so that things will go well for you, and you will live a long time in the land. As for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. As for slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling and with sincere devotion to Christ. Don't work to make yourself look good and try to flatter people. Act like slaves of Christ carrying out God's will from the heart. Serve your owners enthusiastically as though you were serving the Lord and not human beings. You know that the Lord will reward every person who does that is right, what is right whether that person is a slave or a free person. As for masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Stop threatening them because you know that both you and your slaves have a master in heaven. He doesn't distinguish between people on the basis of status. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest. Hello, my name's Daniel Long. I'm a pastor here at Grace. So this is interesting. Um, <laughs> so when we planned the schedule for Ephesians, and, um, and when we were also planning the uh, second presentation regarding women as elders, we weren't thinking, hey, we have a great idea. Uh, Instead, we were, 
going, talking about the few weeks coming up, and we're like, oh. Um, so, it's really funny, because I don't know whether this is providence or poor planning. And <laughs> you can let me know later. And I'm sure, and I'm sure that you will. Uh, so, but... Uh, <laughs> But one of the things I want to do, because I'm actually, I am looking forward to this. I do feel quite, quite overwhelmed uh, because I wonder if some of you are thinking, man, how's he going to get out of this one? Or what is he going to say or not say? Uh, but the beautiful thing about the Word of God, and I kind of made a conscious choice going into this week studying it, was I don't want to be afraid of it. Uh, I don't want to be afraid of the text because the scriptures are a gift to us. And it is through God's word that he continues to speak. And we, as his church, through all time and places, wherever we might find ourselves, are trying to figure out together what it is we do with it and in response to it in order to faithfully follow Jesus. And that is a question that we are always working to ask. And at times we get it wrong, and at times we get it right. But what's always the same is that Jesus is faithful to us. Uh, so my hope in this time is that we might come to the text with an openness to hear what God might have to say afresh. Uh, that we would, would be people who, who submit ourselves to the voice of God and what he has for us today. And a way to do that, or a way I would like for us to do that, is to engage in prayer, asking that our hearts would be open and receptive to the voice of God. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for speaking, and thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for always and forever being the God who moves toward us. And I pray this morning that through your spirit you would continue to do that and we would be attentive to it, that we would be open to what it is you have to say in a way that is fresh and new and in a way that that transforms us into the people you are shaping us to be. So, Father, thank you for your commitment to the work that you are doing in our lives through Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, Ephesians 5. If you want to turn in your Bibles to 978, we're going to be spending most of the time in this thing called the Bible, in the text, walking through it and making some observations uh, and then also... Um, Ending with a so what? So what might God be saying to us through this text? But one thing I do want to say before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of what the text might be saying, uh, I want to, wherever we might land in terms of how we interpret this text, uh, whatever ideas we already come with, um, things we've already heard, things that we can't help but lenses we can't help but wear when we read. One thing is, is clear and certain, and I think we can all agree, praise God that he cares about things like the home and like marriages and parental relationships and the way that we engage with people that we, that we work with. Thank God that the gospel and what God has done in Jesus addresses the things that take up most of our lives. Because if the good news is good news, then it means that everything is different. And what must be different is my day-to-day -day life, in the relationships that I engage, in the places where I am. So praise God and how beautiful it is that the Bible seeks to address something like what it does in Ephesians 5. 
So by way of just reminder, because I think it's important to place this in context, the first half of Ephesians, Paul is really concerned with writing to a collection of churches in Ephesus to talk about the incredible things that God has done through Jesus Christ in calling a people together, that they've been given an inheritance. And that inheritance is, is amazing, and it's it just filled with glory. And it means that, that we are sons and daughters of God, and it means that we are given and receive mercy and grace. It means that we are one, that through Jesus, God has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and that there's the possibility of unity. And so Ephesians 1 through 3 is this incredible picture, cosmic picture of what God has done in Jesus. And then Paul makes a turn in chapter 4 to talk about, so what does this mean? What difference does Christ then make? If this is all true, how does it work itself out in our lives? And we've talked about different things like different paths to walk on that. Now there's another path, a walk as children of light, walk in love, be filled with the Spirit. You don't have to be the people you once were. There is a new way to live, and that way is toward Christ. And then he turns here in Ephesians 5 to talk about how it looks in the day-to-day relationships that a person in Ephesus in the Greco-Roman world, the world that they might then live into in response to the gospel. But of course, the Bible is not written in a vacuum. It's extremely contextual. Now, I don't know if you... if because I wouldn't unless I did some study on it, that what Paul is doing is he's addressing what's called in the Greco-Roman world the household codes. So there's actually an ancient form of discourse in which those in the Greco-Roman world would begin to talk about how things actually play out in the relationships in particular as husband, as father, and as master. So there's actually literature written for these types of relationships and how they're to be ordered in the home because the home in the Greco-Roman world is like a microcosm of everything else that's going on around it. So just to give you a sense of the world in which these codes were written, I want to quote a little bit of Aristotle. Um, He says this, So the male is by nature superior and the female inferior, and the one rules and the other is ruled. And this principle of necessity extends to all mankind. And he continues to go on. Of household management, we have seen that there are three parts. One is the rule of a master over slaves, another of a father, and the third of a husband. A husband and father rules over wife and children, both free, but the rule differs. The rule over his children being a royal, and over his wife a constitutional rule. For although there may be exceptions to the order of nature, the male is by nature fitter for command than the female. Just as the older and full-grown is superior to the younger and more immature. And when one rules and the other is ruled, we endeavor to create a difference of outward forms and names and titles of respect. The relation of the male to the female is of this kind, but there is inequality, but their inequality is permanent. The rule of a father over his children is royal, for he receives both love and the respect due to age, exercising a kind of royal power. So I read this to give you a sense that There were people speaking to how households should be formed and how those forms were then created out of an understanding or concept of how people were ordered, the male being superior and the female being inferior. So because there is a a way in which the culture was already defining how things were, of course, Paul, if this thing has happened in Jesus, then he needs to offer how then Jesus and the gospel and the good news of what God has done 
actually works to subvert or to transform or to speak to those household codes. And so that's why we have this text in which Paul is addressing man as husband, man as parent, and man as master. Paul is wanting to address the very thing that these people would already be aware of. They already know how the household should work. Or do they? Now that God has done something significant in the person of Jesus. So I want to read just some of the first sentences because there are ways in which Paul is already speaking to the women or to the wives, to the children, and to the slaves. Now, if you want to put up that slide, you'll see this so in, in uh, Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then you'll see language as you continue. Husband is the head of the wife. Wives should submit everything or in everything to their husbands. If you go to 6.1, it says, children, obey your parents. Then 6.5, slaves or bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. See, at this point, Paul isn't necessarily saying anything new. This is how things already worked. Wives, children, and slaves would be reading this type of language and say, of course, that's how it is. But then Paul does something remarkable in inserting the gospel into these relationships to then have created a new way of considering them. Because what he does is he begins to reconfigure them in light of what God has done in Jesus. So let's look again, Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So now the wife and husband relationship is caught up in the good news of Jesus. And then it continues with children, 6-1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and mother, calling back the Ten Commandments, the story of God, for this is right. Then it could go down in verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So what, what does this then do? Well, it reframes and reconfigures all of these relationships to suggest that it's no longer primarily for the man, for the husband, for the parent, or for the master. But rather, these relationships are now subordinate and under the authority and reign of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. Can't help but be changed because all of a sudden, God and what he's done in Jesus is inserted into these relationships and they become then reconfigured. They have, to, they have to be. Things can't stay the same. Now, if we take all of this also, and I had verse 21 read, and if you look in your Bibles, it's actually super confusing because it looks like, you know, if, if you look at this Bible, 
you see the heading, wives and husbands, right? Right before verse 22. Well, those things, those headings didn't exist. This was a letter. And Paul didn't say, all right, guess what? Now we're moving into wives and husbands. And he kind of made a marker. He wrote long sentences and paragraphs, and they were together. So you can't help but read this this passage of Scripture without reading verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So this, is a whole, this is text is about mutual submission together because the gospel in Jesus Christ has made it possible for us to submit ourselves to defer the other and not our own selves, but to be looking out for what the, the needs and the desires and, and the call of other people. Some say that this should actually begin with verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So this mutual submission that's worked out is only possible because we are people who are filled with the Spirit. And so that is why these relationships are being reconfigured. But see, the, Paul, that's radical enough that he's talking about mutual submission, that he's actually talking about how these relationships, these household codes have been reconfigured in light of the gospel. But what he does that's so amazing is he talks to the man, to the husband, to the parent, to the father, and to the master. And he has new things to say to him. And it's actually his position in all of that that is realigned more than any other. So let's look there and what he says to the husband. So the husband is called to love the wife in three different ways. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, love them as their own bodies, and then as himself. So verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Or in the the passage we heard read this morning, he loves himself by loving his wife. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husbands. So he, spe- he spends more time talking to the husband here because he's wanting to reconfigure how this husband thought of his household as husband, as parent, as master. Because it's so much different now. The household does not exist for him. It exists for Jesus Christ, for the one who is Lord. And that is why he, Paul continues to say how he's supposed to be in relation to the children. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Masters, verse 9 of 6, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So what is Paul doing He's totally dismantling all of the structures that were already a cultural given. Dismantling in the sense that they are being reconfigured, not completely destroyed. Because you need structure, you need place, especially in the Greco-Roman society, to say, no, we don't need marriages to be anything like this. That wouldn't be a good, good missionary work 
a good missionary says, okay, what are the things at play and at work, and how might the gospel then speak to those? And the way that then Paul is saying that these husbands are to be different is to love their wives in such a way that they are empowering, building them up, helping them to be shaped into the people who can fulfill the redemptive calling that they've been given in Jesus. I mean, that's an incredible calling, a whole new calling for a husband. Fathers, your children, and what they do or don't do isn't primarily for you. Raise them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Masters, treat your slaves. Isn't this interesting? The slaves, well, in each of these, well, at least with the, the, the wives and the slaves, the wife and the slave become the example that the husband and the master is supposed to follow. So he says, masters do the same after he talks about what the slaves are to be and to do. And remember, God shows no partiality. You are all the same in the eyes of God. That is mind-blowing in the context of the Greco-Roman world of this time. Wives, children, slaves, it's radical for them because all of a sudden they've been dignified and who they are is taken up in the story of God. Husbands, parents, fathers, and masters, on the other hand, their whole worldview is needing to shift. The things before them, like their wives, like their children, like their, their slaves, are not for them, but they're for God. And so then their calling is to help them, to empower them, to be who God is calling them to be. Now, if you think about this then, if you think about the husband loving the wife in such a way that Christ loves, this is a self-emptying, self-giving, completely other-centered love. And you can't, or I can't help, but then reconfiguring the language that came before that in light of that. So once you again read in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. And this word head in the Greek could actually mean something like source, the source of life, the source of, of possibility. And, I mean, that's a whole new way of understanding. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All of a sudden, this idea of submission becomes something in the form of what feels like voluntary. Who wouldn't want to sign up for that type of relationship in which they are in a relationship where a person is completely giving of themselves, emptying themselves for their own sake, not for the sake of themselves, not for their own betterment in society, not for their own personal gain and growing in status and honor, but actually for the wife, for the child, for the slave, everything has been reconfigured. And so what, what do I think this does, or some of what I think it does, or Paul is doing, is he's completely reconfiguring not only these household relationships, but the whole concept of power. Status, power, is the way in which the world worked then. But Paul is saying, I want to give you a new way of considering power. Because culture, wherever we find ourselves, 
confers power in its own way. Paul is writing to a culture in which men were just, by definition, inferior. Sorry, superior. (laughs) Women were like, yes! Um, Paul was speaking to a culture in which men were just already superior. In which the household was already made to serve their needs and purposes. That's what Paul had to work with. And he's saying, okay, well then the power you've been given, here's how I want you to use it. I want you to use it in such a way that you are emptying yourself, giving your entire self for the empowerment and benefit and redemptive purpose of all those around you. For those around you who do not have power, who have not by culture been given power, you who have been given that now have a new responsibility. And here's what power in the kingdom economy looks like. Like Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ, like the one who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And taking the form of humankind. That is what power looks like. So yes, you might be given power. You can't help but be born and live in a culture where there are power structures already at play. But the gospel always, will always address those. The gospel will always speak to those in such a way that you can't help but ask, what am I supposed to do with who I am and the power I've been given? Well, it's always for the sake of others. And in this context, in this passage, it's for the sake of the wife, it's for the sake of the child, and it's for the sake of the slave. The power that's been given to this, to this husband, to this father, and to this master is for the purposes of those around him and for their betterment and empowerment and in order for them to, re- to follow after their redemptive calling in Jesus. Because a whole new order has been created in Christ Jesus where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but all are one in Jesus Christ. And then in in Ephesians, it speaks to the idea that we are all one in the Spirit. We have one body, one calling, one Spirit. God has made us one in the person of Jesus. Now step back for a minute and consider the radicality of what Paul has just done. Here's a first century context in which something has happened in the person of Jesus. The Spirit of God is released upon people. All of a sudden, households are being created, are being saved, and and finding new identity in Jesus, and they're gathering together to worship. And Paul is looking at this, and he needs to offer them a new way in reference to the gospel of how to be, how to be in society. And here's why I think that's so significant to us, because we have to do the same thing all the time. If something's happened through Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, then we, in 2019, Long Beach, need to figure out together what that means. 
What does it look like for us to live faithfully in response to what God has done in Jesus? That's the question we are always asking and always working to figure out. But it's not necessarily always just an immediate, clear given. Sometimes I think that happens, and it's amazing, and it's a gift. Other times we need to work together as a community, in unity, as one, to figure out what that looks like for us. So what do I think this text might be saying, kind of in a broad scale for us, in, our, in 2019, Long Beach? Well, I just want to, it says a lot of things. And there are a lot of things I wish I could say. I'm looking at this clock, and I won't say them. But I have a lot of thoughts, so... You know what? If you disagree with me, or even if you agree and you want to continue talking, dlong at gracelb.org. I'd love to get together with you over some type of beverage of your choice. Um, so here are two things I'd like, to, I'd like to suggest that I think God's word in this text is saying to us now. The first one is this, and I think it has something to do with relationships. That relationships, and we've seen this already in Ephesians, are the way in which the gospel works itself out. We can't get out of that. Sometimes I wish I could. I wish I could just be a, a good Christian, but not, but, but read by myself. Like, that's honestly sometimes what I just would love to do. But then I can't. I have people around me that need, that, that need me, or that I need, and that somehow we're trying to figure out what it means for the gospel to work itself out in that relationship. And specifically in this context, or at least in this passage, marriage. Marriage becomes a place in which the story of God and what he's done through Jesus becomes put on display. Marriage, not as something that for me and what I want or what I need, but as a place in which this self-emptying, self-giving love can, can be put on display to be, bear witness to what God has done in Jesus. Now that is countercultural. In a time in which marriage becomes a thing that is for you, for me, primarily, not to exist for anything else. So marriage can be a place in which the gospel can be put on display. But then I know some of you, and I know your stories, and I know some of you at this moment think, well, that doesn't apply to me then. What about my story? I'm single. I'm not married. I don't have kids. I don't even know if I ever will. So does this text have anything to say to me? And I think it does. Because I think that in all of our relationships, God is calling us to love in the way that Christ has loved the church, given his entire and complete self for it in order that the other might be built up, and as the words nourished and cherished. That's true for all relationships. That's true. Like every relationship almost becomes a stage on which the story of the gospel can be played out. And that is a very beautiful and wonderful thing. And that is what we are called to together. So I think it has something to say to our relationships. It has something to say to the way that we consider and think about marriage. And also our parental relationships, right? That, that, I'm, that the parental relationship isn't to be predicated on provocation and getting my kid to do what I want him to do or to make me look good. But it's about, is my child following in the way of Jesus? Now the other thing I think it says is it speaks to power in general. I can't help but read that in this text. 
that because of Jesus and what the gospel's made possible is that we need to reconsider what we do with the power we've been given. And we have all been given our own type of power in our own way. And we are asked then, by God, how are you going to use that for the empowerment of others? How are you going to use your place, wherever that might be, of privilege? You know, I've been thinking a lot about that. And that gets a really bad rap these days. It creates a lot of division, this word privilege. But the truth be told is, we are all privileged. The truth, we have our own type of privilege, whether we like it or not. Andy Crouch in his book, Playing God, which is an incredible discussion on power. He says that, that privilege isn't inherently bad, but it is dangerous. And one of the reasons it's dangerous is because it's usually invisible. It's usually invisible. I've grown, grown up in a world, there are things in, that I have not chosen that are just part of my story. And yet, for whatever reason, I've been born into a culture that says, because of the story that I have, that I did not choose, I have a certain type of power. I have a certain type of privilege. And there are ways in which I'm privileged I have no idea of. But I feel like I'm finding out more and more all the time those different ways. Now, there's one way, or there's two ways, I think, of, of responding to that type of power that culture has given to us. One is to deny it. And to say, well, that's not true. That does not exist. Or it's to say, okay, maybe that is true. Maybe I didn't choose this, but it's been given to me. So what is God asking me to do with it? Imagine if we were people who thought that we could actually be used by God with the power we have for the sake of other people. That's what Jesus did, and that is what he is calling us, his children, his sons, his daughters, to do. But here's what Paul also doesn't do, and I think it's really fascinating in this text, is he never shames, never shames the husband, the parent, or the master. He never does that. What he does is he offers a new story to live into. He doesn't say, how could you do this? How could you be this way, treating your wife like that and treating your children like that and then treating your slaves like that? No. These men were in a context in which they knew nothing better. But Paul says, here is something better. I have a new story for you to live into. Now, what if we also operated in that way with one another? Instead of casting judgment or shame, what if we together helped one another live into a better story? The story in which God himself came to us in Jesus, laid down his life so that we might have it. What if that is our calling? What if that is what God is asking us to do with what he's given to us? Thanks be to God. We good? Got through it? All right. Um, so, uh, thanks, John. I can always count on you. Um, so, here's, here's what we do now. Every other week, we, we take a time in which we, we pray. Uh, and we, we have people on the sides who want to pray with you. Um, but I also want to encourage you, maybe that's too risky, but you feel like you, God has called something from you 
that you need prayer for, find somebody you trust and ask them to pray for you. Now, here are some ways. I want to offer some ways, and, and I don't know how God spoke to you. I don't even want to suggest that I know. But as I was thinking about this, here are some things that came to mind. Now, I know that for that any, any conversation about marriage, for those who aren't married or were and are no longer, that's wounding. And that's just hard to take and to receive. And you don't know what to do with that. And maybe you feel a little sense of guilt or shame or I don't know what went wrong and, and I don't know what my place was in that or I don't know why I'm not where I want to be relationally. I just know that God looks upon you, does not cast shame or judgment upon you, but wants to enter into that with you. So perhaps that's a way to pray. Maybe you feel a sense of of, of calling. You, you want to, to, yes, live into a new story and you don't know where to start. That might be a place somebody can pray with you for and about. Perhaps you that even a conversation like this brings up a whole lot of um, disorienting feelings in terms of, I don't know, anger, or frustration, uh, or confusion. Perhaps God wants to also meet you there. So here are some ways I think that, that God might be calling upon you to receive prayer with others. So again, there will be people on the sides or take the risk of asking somebody you trust and love to pray with you in however way. I just know God wants to be with us and wants to meet us and wants to meet you and be with you. So if you'd please stand and those who are um, praying, if you can please go to the sides now.